0: Support for WVIK comes from Kathleen Collins at the Dragonfly in Bettendorf. Using both conventional and alternative counseling methods for empowerment to help create change for individuals and couples. More information is at KathleenCollinsCounseling.com.
1: You're listening to Heartland Politics with Robin Johnson. A presentation of WVIK Quad Cities NPR. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Heartland Politics show and podcast, which is aired on and distributed by WVIK, Quad Cities NPR. WVIK is the flagship public radio station in the Quad Cities region of northwestern Illinois and eastern Iowa. This is your host, Robin Johnson, and we had the uh, State of the Union message this week, and I I watched it, and it was quite interesting and a bit unusual, uh, perhaps uh, a little bit different than those in the past um very important message though and and uh that's going to be our topic today uh with josh Kroschauer, who's a senior political correspondent for axios which is one of the major political sources uh uh out there right now josh thanks for taking the time today robin it's great to be with you well did the president succeed in getting his message through to the american people well look i i think number one
0: you can look at this as a Early re-election speech because it was so heavy, and I know you can appreciate this. That first quarter of the speech was so heavy on talking about interests of blue-collar workers, of uh, cutting some of the re- resort taxes you pay when you check in at your hotel or airline fees, and all, all, all you know, focusing on um, the way to improve educational opportunities and economic opportunities for union uh, workers. Uh, that is something that has been part of President Biden's brand. But Democrats and even Biden did not perform well with, with blue-collar rural voters in, in the 2020 election and, and you know, into the midterms of 2022. So that was a big focus for the White House. They want to both show that they're in tune with blue-collar interests, but also point to Republican extremes. that You saw the president almost baiting the element of uh, outspoken right-wing Republicans like Marjorie Taylor Green uh over entitlement reform over, over spending cuts and that's always been a, a challenge for Republicans. It's sort of the classic Democratic attack line against conservative Republicans they want to cut Social Security, Medicaid, Medicare and you know and, and, and spending. And that is uh, not popular. It's dividing the Republican Party right now. In fact, between Donald Trump and a whole lot of the other candidates looking to run for president. So uh, this is an effective political speech. The big challenge though, Robin, for, for, for President Biden is that he said in that speech that the economy is doing great. Unemployment, 3.4%, record number of jobs being created over the last you know, 40 years, over the last, last few years rather. And the problem is when you look at every poll, Uh, most Americans think the economy is not doing well. In fact, Gallup just came out with a new survey this week showing that more Americans are feeling that the economy is headed in the wrong direction than any time since the Great Recession around 2009. So there is this disconnect between the rosy view of the economy uh, by President Biden, the data that seems pretty encouraging if you you look at at least the job numbers and the unemployment numbers, but the reality of persistent inflation and the fact that a lot of people are not getting the jobs they want and not living the lives they're they're looking to live at a time of great uncertainty, so that is the opportunity for Biden. I thought he did a good job with the speech, but there are a lot of challenges ahead for this White House.
1: I was I, one of the things I was waiting to hear was whether he was going to acknowledge that people are still feeling some pain out here, and he did a little. But it was like, you know, uh, it was almost like he was telling people they should feel better about the economy. I mean, did you get that sense a little bit that it's like, hey, this is going great. How come you're not feeling this?
0: Yeah, and and you have to draw this line between talking about the good news. You want to hype all, all, all the good data that 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 came out last month, but at the same time, feel the pain of, of the people and that many, many Americans that aren't getting ahead. And that's a tough needle to thread. you know, Democrats overperformed. In the midterms did quite well in the midterm elections not because people thought the economy was great but because they viewed republicans as too extreme and it's easy to kind of overinterpret the results of the midterms as a you know referendum on, on the economy or a referendum on the president rather than what i think it really was which is weak, weak republican candidates across the board uh and and look that that's going to be the challenge that that biden does not in the polls have great approval numbers a lot of Democrats even don't want him to run for reelection again, and people still like right now. People still think the economy isn't doing all that well. So, how do you convince voters that their perception is, is inaccurate? That that's a challenge, and you better hope that that that's a lagging indicator that people start feeling better about the economy in the coming months.
1: Yeah, I a lot of analysis on on his efforts and the Democrats' efforts to reach out to working class white working class voters, which of course out here in the in the Midwest that's the key demographic. They they arguably uh, accounted for uh, the results in the last two presidential elections. Um, I, I would argue um, out here, uh, but yet uh, his poll numbers are 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 not the best among the, this demographic. You saw some leakage in this last election of working class Hispanic and African American voters to the Republicans. Um, the question, I guess, Josh is: Do you think? I mean, what what are you hearing as far as? can can the president's economic message of getting good paying jobs for, for people without college degrees overcome the hesitance a lot of these folks have on the cultural issues uh, wh- where they disagree with the Democrats on?
0: That is a big problem. And, and frankly, uh, it's not just an economic challenge for the White House. It, it, it's one where the values of blue collar Midwestern America are at odds with not just biden but but the democratic Party i think the democratic party writ large uh, even candidates like tim ryan who i think ran a very strong campaign a culturally moderate uh, campaign for the most part in ohio didn't do all that much better than, than other democrats because there's just a a real worry about how the cultural issues whether you're talking about you know classroom curriculum or whether you're talking about you know transgender issues or whether you're talking about you know, school was COVID and the and the related issues from school closures to mask mandates and so on. Uh, there's a disconnect between sort of this white educated professional class that are, you know, overpopulated perhaps in this Biden White House and the values in in, in a lot of uh, parts of uh, Iowa and uh, the Midwest and in a lot of, across a lot of America. So that I mean, the way I look at it politically is Biden doesn't need to make dramatic inroads with. Uh, white white working class voters uh to be successful. Democrats have hit rock bottom with those voters. So even small inroads can make a big difference. Uh so like that that I think that is the you have to keep your if you're a Democrat, if you're a Biden, you've got to keep your expectations in check. But you know just gaining a couple points uh, in in Iowa and in states where the Democrats have lost a lot of ground lately can make a huge difference. And, and that I think is what they're looking for.
1: You know we haven't spoken in a while, uh, but but I, I was surprised that the Democrats, at least out here, I didn't see evidence of it. And we had uh, in our Quad Cities region, we had three very competitive congressional elections. Um, I didn't hear talk, Democrats talking much about the, these three three major pieces of legislation that were passed: infrastructure, the Chips Act, and then the uh, Inflation Reduction Act, which has a lot of incentives for climate. It seems like the topics were more abortion and, and uh, elections and the future of the country, uh, democracy, which are not saying that's not important. but Boy, out here, I really thought there was a big missed opportunity. There wasn't much talk about that. Did you see any evidence that the Democrats really tried to take advantage of these uh, bills? They, I mean, that's what they're there for. They passed these bills. These are designed to address uh, the the problems they've had with working class voters. It seemed like a perfect opportunity to talk about it. I didn't hear much of it out here.
0: Yeah, I um, I think you're making a very smart point in that the Inflation Reduction Act was one of the big accomplishments of the Biden administration, one of the biggest pieces of legislation that got passed. Uh, yet, no, very few Democrats are eager to promote it. Uh, and in the one, the Joe Manchin, who was a key senator who got that legislation secured, is now having some cold feet and is talking about how Democrats are so focused. On the climate change and green energy aspects of that legislation, which may be popular again with the progressive uh, base, the folks who maybe di- are, are, are disproportionately in the Biden administration, but it doesn't play well in West Virginia. That doesn't play well in Ohio. That doesn't play well in Iowa necessarily. Um, so you know, th- th- there's a reason that bill was labeled the Inflation Reduction Act. Uh, they they weren't. It, w- it was primarily a climate change kind of green energy type type of legislation. And they wanted to kind of spin it as a way to reduce inflation. The reality is inflation is still a serious problem. And again, the green energy components—just the reason you package those 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 those, uh, elements in a bigger bill—is that you don't want to sell them on their own. They're not—that's tough to sell politically. So we're seeing Joe Manchin already having some concerns about how that's playing out in West Virginia. But I think a lot of other similarly situated states are, uh, you know, not 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 feeling the inflation reduction and not. Uh, as receptive about what's actually in that legislation
1: well it still seems too like they've got a messaging problem and trying to bring everything together in a coherent way uh build back better wasn't the best choice it didn't seem like to me uh and part of it i think uh and we'll see you know the big federal government they're now putting together from what i understand implementing laws and trying to get the money out and maybe it'll make a difference once this starts getting spread out across the country but uh It seems, you know, it seems part of this, though, is messaging, too, which the Democrats seem to have trouble with uh, consistently.
0: Yeah, it's a messaging issue, but I think it's also a substance issue. I mean, whenever you hear there's a messaging problem from either party, it often means you're not convincing the public of the merits of of your argument. And you you hear that a lot. I mean, again, going back to this Inflation Reduction Act, they tried to do the message. The messaging in that bill was calling it about inflation, referring it as an inflation reduction bill, not a climate change bill, because I think they are skeptical about their ability to persuade uh, a lot of uh, Americans who work in you know, uh, fossil fuel related jobs, energy producing jobs in the Midwest, in the Rust Belt. Um, that's not an easy sell to say, we're gonna you know, change evolve the jobs that you have to something new, but they're not gonna be there right away, right? Um, in West Virginia, like clearly that's a, a net negative. So uh, you know it was it, look it was it was a real accomplishment to get Joe Manchin on board for a bill that ultimately is probably could end up you know crippling his reelection chances uh in West Virginia, but ultimately selling it is, is more of a substance problem than a than a messaging problem.
1: Was there anything that surprised you in the speech that was omitted or included? i mean it went seventy two minutes and i i i was i was uh i'll admit to being a little uh turning it over a little bit at the end, I shouldn't, uh, my political science students shouldn't hear that, but uh, um, it's kind of dragged out with all the uh, the gamesmanship and all, but was there anything included or left out that you were surprised by or that people are talking about today, a couple days later?
0: Yeah, I mean, look, the biggest surprise for me is that there was less attention paid to foreign policy, China in particular, than I expected, and frankly, the, than the urgency of the last week when we saw this balloon traversing across this Chinese balloon, tra- traversing across the U.S., posing a national security threat, us shooting it down, uh, there was like 20 words, I think, at, at most, were devoted to that in the speech. China did not get as much attention uh, as I expected. And, and look, I think there's a larger argument, Like this is this is the chance for the president to speak not just to the American audience, but to a global audience, and laying out the case that he makes pro- at least privately and sometimes publicly, about the battle between totalitarian regimes and democracies. And that that, that was, you know, ultimately, that was sort of how he launched his own uh, political or his presidential campaign in, in 2019 by talking about saving democracy. And there is this global argument to be made and to be had that connects China and taking on Russia with, with helping out the Ukrainians, Iran. I mean, there is a, an argument. Bush called it the axis of evil back in 2003. I don't think Biden would put it in such moral... Uh, terms or the stakes at so high, but there's an argument that Biden makes that that's very similar, and we did not hear that in, in the State of the Union speech uh, this week.
1: You're listening to Heartland Politics on WVIK Public Radio in the Quad Cities. Quad Cities NPR. This is your host Robin Johnson, and my guest today is Josh Kraushaar, and we're talking about the State of the Union uh, address by President Biden this week. Josh is senior political correspondent for Axios and we've talked a little bit about the speech some of the major themes maybe what was left out uh it it really was interesting and and a bit uh surprising and maybe even depressing that again we seem to be uh the 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 norms in our country continue to be torn down in our current politics uh with the with the uh shouting and uh at, at the state of the union but i I have to say, I was disappointed in that, but it seemed to me that the president was doing a little, uh, almost uh, baiting some of the Republicans. Uh, is this another <laughs> sad relic, I guess, of, of the decorum at the State of the Union as a thing of the past, or what?
0: Um, yeah, I feel like the, the bar has been lowered. Um, you know, going back to Joe, Wil- when Obama spoke and Joe Wilson said, what was 2009, you lie, that was sort of a, one, one moment that symbolize the declining decorum at the State of the Union. You know, even Pelosi ripping up Trump's speech, you know, that was not, I mean, whatever you think of Trump, like that was the type of behavior that really polarized the country. Um, you know, Alito versus Obama, the Obama tried to attack the Supreme Court and Alito, you know, visibly are debating the president, former president. I mean, there have been moments that have led to this, this, this moment. And uh, you know, I we've gotten to the point where these days, the decline in rhetoric, the the, the civility—it's uh, gotten to such a low point that almost you don't blink an eye when you see stuff like this.
1: It's, well, I do. De- you think Democrats feel a little reassured with Biden's performance? I mean, he seemed he seemed to be relishing the give and take with the Republicans, and. Uh, I, I was surprised by that. I mean, he's a Joe Biden's. I mean, a, a creature of Congress, the Senate, and tradition. And here he is, kind of. It almost looked like he was baiting them on Social Security, and he he seemed to be enjoying the cat calls and all. He, he,
0: well, he was. It's funny that at the beginning of the speech, there were some times where he misspoke or seemed a little bit halting, but then he was pretty quick on his feet when it came to baiting. Or responding maybe to Marjorie Taylor Greene and her cohort there in the back, you know. Look, I, I, if you're a Democrat, you're, you're you're consolidating behind Biden and his re-election announcement coming soon. That that everything has been looking good for Biden in terms of the institutional wing of the Democratic Party lawmakers donors consultants like they are lining up behind biden the progressives know that he's the guy that they need to get behind there's not a lot of uh backbiting or it's civil war <laughs> it's the, the dissension in the ranks so to speak um look if biden, there's a reason why and if biden stepped aside you would see a civil war within the party between the left and the moderate so that biden being the glue that holds it together having the advantage of incumbency it's very reassuring to the folks who are the rank and file uh, leaders of the party. The, the challenge, though, as I've mentioned, Robin, is that the voters, including Democratic voters, are not nearly as uh, supportive of Biden, and not at least not as enthusiastic. Um, and that matters in both a uh, re-election bid. And, and look, we don't think that there's anyone gonna run, anyone of significance that's gonna run against Barack Biden in a primary, but let me lay out a scenario for you. Um, New Hampshire has been sidelined uh, from the primary process they're likely going to hold a first-in-the-nation primary sanctioned by the, not sanctioned, rather, by the DNC. What if, you know, someone on the progressive left decided on a whim to just challenge Biden in that primary, unsanctioned, doesn't mean anything other than for symbolism, and then did quite well. Um, You know, there is this, you know, grassroots, uh, you know, lukewarm feeling towards Biden. Not, Not a lot of enthusiasm there. And he's vulnerable, I think, both on his left flank uh but also there's just not a lot of enthusiasm among younger voters and among um you know, a lot a lot of the base uh when it comes to a re-election so um he can be very very thankful that the party itself the party decides party leaders behind him and it looks like he's heading all steam ahead to a re-election announcement but there are a lot of worrying indicators in the numbers and in the data uh about his chances in 2024.
1: i'm just surprised he's running uh, I, I really am. And and part of it is his age. I'll be honest. Um, I know you've got great sources. I mean, I, you, you, Josh, for our listeners used to uh, write the against the grain column for the national journal and had what I thought was one of the best podcasts, the against the grain podcast. I listened to that during my walks all the time. Uh, you had some great people on there and I know you've got great sources. There's no, you're not picking up anything out there. I mean, Biden's pretty much consolidated the key uh key institutions of the Democratic Party
0: yeah no they're they're um institutionally uh right now Biden has kind of calmed the the, the jitters that were there before the the midterms um I uh I I, I uh yeah I I I, I, I look things could change and, and again there there is this remarkable disconnect between the polling the actual you know measurements of public opinion and the leadership. But yes, if you talk to look, all you had to do is listen to some some lawmakers on the Democratic side in September of 2022, who weren't necessarily backing Biden uh, running for a second term that those jitters, those anxieties have, have quieted down.
1: Before we get to the Republican side, I, one more one more question, I guess, as a Midwesterner, of course, I'm not thrilled with uh, the change in the uh, in in the um force of the democratic primaries and caucuses. I understand Iowa, you know, here, uh, there were problems with the counting of the caucuses, the three elections in a row. Um, but it seems to me and, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but if the major focus for the Democrats is trying to get working class voters back, uh, to get rid of Iowa. Okay. But then to relegate Michigan, which is kind of the replacement to kind of the, at the end of the pack behind these other States, um, it seemed like a priority was put on ele- other elements of the Democratic Party. And I think that'll come back to hurt uh, w- when you're trying to shun smaller rural states like an uh, Iowa and a New Hampshire uh, and then relegating Michigan, which to me might have been a better bet to go first. Uh, and again, I'm prejudiced. I'm a Midwesterner. But d- it's is this kind of op- operating at counter to uh, counter purposes to what? The goal of the party is right now, as, as he said in his State of the Union address.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's always the law of unintended consequences when you make these types of changes. The, theory, the Look, the theory of the case is a good one, that you want to have a diverse uh, roster of states in the early window. And that's why South Carolina is now slated to go first. Georgia is potentially moving up, but Republicans may not change that date. Uh, they control the, the governing apparatus in Georgia. So the, 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 some of the ideas may not actually get implemented. And New Hampshire looks like it's also not going to listen to the DNC and they have an unsanctioned primary at the very beginning of the process. So the worry, I mean, look, I think Michigan is a obvious contender to be the face of the Midwest, maybe better than Iowa in, in some regards. But it's also not a retail state. It's not a state where you can really, or it's hard to travel across the state like you can in New Hampshire or Iowa. Uh, and And it's... It's, it's frankly, I think we need a lot of money to compete in. Um, you need to be a well-funded candidate where the appeal of Iowa and New Hampshire is that you don't need a lot of money. You just need to show that you can connect with voters at the town hall or grassroots level. So we'll see how things play out. I mean, Biden may have hurt himself. If Like I said, if someone, if some progressive, like Marianne Williamson, puts herself on the ballot in an unsanctioned New Hampshire primary and kind of captures that annoyance that Biden sidelined the first-in-the-nation state primary, Yeah, it could be a problem. It could be a little bit of a nuisance for for the White House when they otherwise wouldn't face a challenge. Uh, And also, this is just for, you know, this may may be a whole lot of noise about nothing because this is just for 2024. I assume this is going to last going into the future, and Iowa's not going to have that vaunted first in the nation caucus again, but they, they, you know, we'll see how this works. This may not be a big deal because Biden may end up being unopposed, and we won't pay attention to the Democratic primaries. We'll pay attention to the Republican primaries where Iowa and New Hampshire are still you know, front and center in
1: their calendar. I think it'll come back and be more than an annoyance, like in a general election, like New Hampshire, especially uh, those, those electoral votes could be important, but uh, switching to the Republicans, they've got their own challenges. Uh, Trump's still the 800 pound gorilla. And uh, um, it looks to me like out here that he's still strong. He's going to, the Republicans have kept the same calendar. He will, I he, he will likely win Iowa handily, um my guess is and uh I, you know is it are, are the odds right now in favor of a rematch
0: yeah i mean i, I actually think that trump I, I was in new hampshire for trump's first 2024 uh campaign appearance and it wasn't in front of a rally it wasn't an adoring crowd it was a bunch of rank-and-file republicans in new hampshire some of whom really supported them strongly supported the president but a lot of whom we're also looking for someone more forward-looking for 2024. Ron DeSantis, his name came up quite a bit, for instance. Um, look, I, and I, you always see a, someone who's a former president with high name ID at this early stage doing better in polls. And look, some polls already show Trump trailing DeSantis in, in, in a head-to-head or, or, or multi-candidate matchup. Look, you can't rule, I, I think Trump, if I had to put odds on this, I, you know, I think, maybe 40 percent chance Trump is the nominee in the field, 60 percent. DeSantis has a lot of questions about whether he he has the ability, the charisma, the, the, the social, the the empathy, the, the social emotional intelligence, as some folks say, uh, to really, you know, do well at a national level at, at the town halls in New Hampshire, at the, uh, at, at the events in Iowa. But look, I, Trump is definitely wounded, not because people don't, didn't like his presidency on the Republican side, but because they know that he's a many Republicans at least know that he's a weight on the Republican shoulders, um, and they want someone younger and fresher that can draw a nice contrast with with President Biden. So DeSantis is the flavor of the of the moments, uh, and he is doing remarkably well for someone who is you know just a governor and and um, has has immense support from parts of the base. But we'll see how he when he gets in, we'll see how, how things go and how how we can withstand attacks from from Trump. And, uh, you know, look, I, I, Nikki Haley's announcing next week. And I, I think there also is room. We'll see how many people get in. But I think there's room for like a well someone who has support from donors and who can kind of be that optimistic conservative voice that the party's been lacking in recent years. So there's a lot of a lot of time to go. I, I think people try to kind of fight the last war instead of looking ahead at these leading indicators on, on where the party is moving. Look, the, the party is not a populist, pugilistic Mood which fits Trump and fits DeSantis as well, but um, things can change and electability. Boy, I mean, after Republicans have lost three straight elections, uh, they, they may be in a mood for looking to, for someone with a little more of a winning streak, a little more of an electability argument than in past elections.
1: I was, we just have about a minute left here. I was trying to remember four years ago and eight years ago, I think there was a lot more activity here at this time of the year, uh, the year before the election. And I know things will start heating up, but, um, uh, I, I do anticipate it'll be, it'll be very competitive out here. Do you, and I, I'm, I'm putting you on the spot here and I, maybe I shouldn't do that, but I, I got you. So I'm going to ask, do you think that if Trump does not win the nomination, there's a realistic chance he may go third party to try to take this working class Republican idea, this populist nationalist message in a third party?
0: I have done some reporting on this, actually. So it's it's not an unfair question. It's a very important question. Um, look, the, I think the bigger risk is that he would not endorse or have a lukewarm support for whoever the Republican nominee is. It, it's hard when you're running as a Republican to get ballot access as an independent. I, I've done a little bit of uh, legwork on this, and it, Trump would face challenges getting on the ballot in, in 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 all 50 states if he wanted to play spoiler and if he didn't win the nomination, looking to run as an independent. So I think it's very hard for him to pull that off. But he certainly, look, these are a lot, elect- we're a 50-50 country. These elections have all been closely divided, even in you know 2020, Biden won by four points, not a huge margin. Um, any, any, if any Trump supporters stayed home or weren't enthusiastic about showing up because of the divisions within the, the party, that could have a huge consequence. And yeah. Trump is not the kind of person who likes to play team ball, to put it mildly. So I, he doesn't need to be on the ballot as an independent, Right. He, he just needs to play spoiler in his own way on Twitter or Facebook, on Truth Social, whatever he's using to express lack of support for whoever the nominee is. He notably did an interview with Hugh Hewitt, uh, the radio conservative radio host, where he did not again, did not commit to supporting the Republican nominee, which is something that even like the Larry Hogan and a lot of the more anti-Trump Republicans have ostensibly done, uh, at least the ones I've heard when they've been asked that question. So it's a real worry. It's what It's what, that's the biggest fear of Republicans, that Trump if he's angry, we'll divide the party and hand another election to the Democrats.
1: Both parties have real, real uh, issues and internal dynamics, and uh, it'll be really interesting to watch. I just I ask the students in a college class I teach uh, if they're enthusiastic about a Trump Biden rematch. And it's universally no. So uh, but that very could be what we have. We'll see. Uh, Josh Kraush, a uh, senior political correspondent for Axios, has been our guest today. Always fun talking, speculating, and uh, uh, I'm sure there'll be a lot here to keep us busy this year. But Josh, thank you so much for taking the time uh, to be our guest today on Heartland Politics. Thanks, Robin. You're listening to Heartland Politics with Robin Johnson. A presentation of WVIK Quad Cities NPR.